Welcome to the sermon podcast of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Cheyenne. We are a welcoming community that invites you to listen to our podcast or join us in person in Cheyenne, Wyoming on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. For more information, visit our website at uucheyenne.org. This morning's reading is uh, part of the Christian lectionary readings for the beginning of Lent. It's from the book of Matthew, chapter 6. It's verses 1 through 6 and then 16 through 21. This particular translation is called the message. It's a little bit more of an interpretation than a translation. It takes uh, biblical Greek and Hebrew and sort of moves them into contemporary language that you or I might find more familiar. Which is why God comes off as like sort of sassy and petty in this translation. Be careful when you are trying to be good so that you don't make a performance out of it. It might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding. When you do something for someone else, don't call attention to yourself. You've seen them in action, I'm sure. Play actors, I call them, treating prayer meeting and street corner alike as a stage acting compassionate as long as someone is watching, playing to the crowds. They get applause, true, but that's all they get. When you help someone out, don't think about how it looks. Just do it, quietly and unobtrusively. That is the way your God, who conceived you in love, working behind the scenes, helps you out. And when you come before God, don't turn it into a theatrical production either. All these people making a regular show of their prayers, hoping for stardom. Do you think God sits in a box seat? Here is what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God, and you will begin to sense God's grace. When you practice some appetite-denying discipline to better concentrate on God, don't make a production out of it. It might turn you into a small-time celebrity, but it won't make you a saint. If you go into training inwardly, act normal outwardly. Shampoo and comb your hair, brush your teeth, wash your face. God doesn't require attention-getting devices. God won't overlook what you're doing. God will reward you well. And don't hoard treasure down here, where it gets eaten by moths or corroded by rust or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven, where it's safe from moths and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. Before 
I went to seminary to become a minister and do all of these things with my time, I was a middle school teacher. And if you have either been or known or loved uh, somebody who teaches in a public school, you will know that there is no more stressful time in a school building than the annual evaluation season. It's like dementors have come to the school building. Everyone is on edge, and you know when somebody has their formal evaluation with the principal that day because sun suddenly somebody who has worn jeans and an ill-fitting polo shirt every other day of the year is in a suit. I remember when I was being evaluated, I taught um, ESOL, ESOL, or English to speakers of other languages, and my experience of being evaluated was typically that the principal was always just so astonished that the kids didn't speak English, and I did, and somehow they were learning. He was just like, I didn't know they could do that. I was like, yes, they can, I assure you. Though I think my favorite was one day I saw a colleague of mine walking into the principal's office, and she was one of those teachers who was sort of known for not, like, right, she was not known for giving out extra treats. She was not known for fun in her classroom. And she was walking in with a giant Costco tub of Twizzlers under her arm. And I said, like, oh, hey, Ms. Kearns, like, was your class really good? Like, did they really outperform your expectations? And she looked at me and she said, no. I have my evaluation today, and I told them that if they're good, they'll get a Twizzler. <laughs> right, and part of me was kind of astonished and, and saddened, right? Have we really come to a place where you feel like you have to bribe children with sugar in order to get them to learn in the presence of your administrator? Right, and of course, another part of me was mad that I hadn't thought of that for my evaluation. But that's, it's one of those phenomenon, right, those big evaluation things that makes me think about, right, how do we act when no one is watching? Because, right, the part of me that is very righteous always felt at evaluation season like, shouldn't we want them to see what our classrooms are really like on a day-to-day -day basis? Right, shouldn't we want them to know the truth about what's happening? Shouldn't we be performing at that high standard every day? And not just when the principal is coming. How do we act when no one is watching? When there's no one there to say, you did a good job or a bad job or a so-so job or heavens, you need some help, don't you? As I've thought about wisdom, this month and this week, I thought about how the ways that wisdom ends up happening in relationship with other people, the ways that we're trying to prove that we're wise to other people. And that made me wonder, right, when we're trying to claim wisdom, who are we claiming it to? For whose benefit do we want to appear wise or knowledgeable or experienced, or to possess that deep understanding that Ken talked about. Right? To whom are we proving it when we say that we're behaving justly, or faithfully, or kindly, or compassionately? To whom are we proving all of this? To whom are we showing it? 
And this morning's reading, right, which sort of is an excerpt from a, a long, winding sermon that uh, Jesus gave, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, right? And so it's just teaching. It's just Jesus standing there teaching to people. And he's teaching about spiritual practices, and he's teaching about how to behave together, but he specifically takes this time to talk about how we live our faith publicly. Right? And I know that there, right in the room this morning, there's sort of everyone on a spectrum of theism, on Christianity, and, and all those things. But that, that question about what does it mean to live your faith publicly, no matter your theology, I think that question is worth asking. Our Christian friends and neighbors are in the season of Lent, which I remember, I can't remember if it was last year or the year before, I did a like, children's story about Lent, and I was like, what's Lent, kids? And one child was like, it's what's in the dryer <laughs> after you dry your clothes. It's like, yes, I love human relationship. It's filled with misunderstanding. Right, but Lent is this opportunity in the Christian liturgical seasons to sort of prepare one's life and heart and spirit for the coming Easter. And there's lots of different ways that are sort of traditional in Christian settings. There sort of has three big components, prayer, fasting, and giving. And I was talking to Kathleen earlier this week And she said, is there anything in the Bible that addresses posting about your Lent practice on Facebook and acting all holy because you're giving something up for Lent? And I was like, interestingly enough, there is, and it's our reading for Sunday. (laughs) Right? It's about this question of how do you live that faith publicly? How do you take what you're doing, whether it's a prayer practice a giving practice, a fasting practice, or, or anything, right? How do you take what you are engaged in as a person of faith and live it publicly in relationship to all of these other people or in the case of Kathleen's frenemies, apparently all of your followers on Facebook? What does it mean to be a faithful and wise person who lives all of this out? What does it mean that we only possess a piece of that wisdom? Right, like in our story from this morning, what does it mean to be living this faith out loud together when none of us has the jug that contains all of the wisdom in the whole entire world. Each of us possesses just a small piece. And of course, as we talk about what it means to be a wise person, one whom other people might look to, I think specifically about the ways that different people get to appear wise. And that what is read in some people as wisdom can be read in others as arrogance. 
What is read in some people as wisdom can be read in others as being uppity or acting above your station. The ways that we think of someone as being wise are deeply impacted, especially by race and gender in our society and culture. And that one person who gets lauded as wise, right, seen as, right, that offering their opinion is sort of their right because they have wisdom. That another person may be seen as being bossy or acting out or pushy. Being wise is not something that's quite so fixed. So if wisdom isn't fixed, right, if wisdom isn't like a thermometer sometimes, right, where you will just like, right, you'll get wiser and wiser and wiser, and then one day you will reach the moment and you've become a wise person and you get your wise person badge and then you will be wise forever and ever. Wisdom isn't fixed. It's like the jar that's been broken. There's these little pieces and fragments of it that have moved around and been hidden in different people, in different times, in different places. I think about the sort of second piece of the reading from Matthew this morning. Right, where Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God, and you will begin to sense God's grace. What if being wise is about shifting your focus about shifting your focus away from yourself sometimes, but also about shifting your focus towards the things that matter. About giving your attention, your time, your energy, those things that might stand in for that word treasure in the, in the Bible passage, Right about shifting the way you use your spirit to focus on the things that matter. Wisdom, right? Wisdom lives in those unexpected places and times. Wisdom lives in those in-betweens. The NPR personality, Krista Tippett, wrote a book called Becoming Wise, and this is how she describes that process, right, of finding wisdom in those in-between spaces. She writes... We often don't quite trust that rebirth will follow the deaths of what we thought we knew. 
We sense that somehow what comes next is up to us, but we're not sure where to begin. Yet it's precisely in these moments when we let our truest, hardest questions rise up in our midst, allow their place among us, that we become able to live into them rather than away from them, and we do so together. We are so achingly frail and powerful all at once in this adolescence of our species. But I have seen that wisdom emerges precisely in those moments when we have to hold seemingly opposite realities in creative tension and interplay. Power and frailty, birth and death, pain and hope, beauty and brokenness, mystery and conviction, calm and buoyancy, mine and yours. Wisdom happens in that in-between space. It happens when our focus is shifting away from performing our goodness, right? Away from play acting what it means to be a just, faithful, kind, and compassionate human being. When we're shifting away from that and towards what it means to do those things with integrity and authenticity, and wisdom is not, I would venture to say, some gold standard of people who have arrived at doing it all perfectly. Because if you know anybody who is doing it all perfectly, I would like you to tell me about them because I surely have not met them. It's possible that none of you have either. It's because I would propose that no such person exists. Right, that this myth that there is one wise person or just a few wise people somewhere who are getting it all right and someday if we just do the right things we'll get there too, it's not true. And so for me, wisdom is what happens, it's what we learn, it's what we figure out about ourselves and other people in that shift from performing goodness to living it, to understanding it, to desiring it with all of our heart and soul. Wisdom is about showing up authentically, right? Not perfectly, not properly, not respectably, but authentically. It's being present to other people who are also showing up authentically. And I will say that, right, that being present with other people who are showing up authentically, in theory, you're like, yeah, I like want to be in authentic community and we're all showing up together. Isn't that beautiful? Until it turns out that the way someone else shows up authentically is really hard for you to deal with. Right? And until you learn that so the way someone else shows up authentically is that they need an accommodation that you don't understand. And I would venture to say that wisdom, real wisdom, is finding the divine in that space between the two of you about staying in relationship long enough to sense what might be moving 
what might be happening in the in-between, in the complication, right, in the disagreement, in the pause in which someone says, I don't understand. I don't know what you mean. I don't see it that way. In the pause in which someone asks a question rather than dismissing, the pause in which we acknowledge that there is something happening among us, between us. And it's not a drama that we play out on stage for the benefit of others, or even, I think, especially in our Unitarian Universalist context, right, for some otherworldly being who's watching us from the balcony, noting our errors. Right, and that's one of the things I like, love about the, um, this sort of interpretation of this passage from Matthew is what it says, do you think God has a box seat? Right, the divine does not sort of look down on you. It's, right, it's not like the teacher waiting for you to make a mistake, right? The divine is moving. It's around us, it's in us, it's among us. Wisdom lives among us. It does not belong to any one creature or being or person or kind of people. Wisdom belongs to all of us. It flew out of the jar. And it went all kinds of places to all kinds of people. Yes, even that person, the one you're thinking of, who you think does not possess any wisdom. You're all so mad about that. <laughs> yes, even that person possesses some piece of this wisdom. May we find ways to discover it together. May it be so. Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Cheyenne. To learn more about us, check out our website at uucheyenne.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash uucheyenne. Thanks for listening.